0: Welcome to the Astorias Podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. The Astorias Revolution is the most famous episode of the Second Republic period in Spanish history, but it is more often the subject of legend and propaganda than history. To discuss the local history that lies behind the legends, I'm joined by Matthew Carey, a lecturer at the University of Stirling and the author of the book Unite Proletarian Brothers, Radicalism and Revolution in the Spanish Second Republic which is available open access through University of London Press. So Matt, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks very much for having me. Could you start out by telling us a bit about the geography and economy of this Asturian region in Northern Spain and what made it unique?
1: Yeah, so Asturias is located on on the Northern coast um, and it's part of what's often called Green Spain. Um, It's quite damp. It has a coastal, coastal climate. It's very different, uh, I suppose, to the central meseta or, or to the south. Um, it's not a region of olive groves or, or of orange trees. Um, you know, it's a very mountainous region um, with lots of steep-sided um, valleys and rivers. Um, and in terms of farming as well, traditionally it was, it was very different to other areas of Spain. So we don't see the kind of the large-scale farms again of, of the south. Um, it's much smaller scale, um, market gardening, um, the rearing of cattle. Um, the raising of, of maize and beans, um, and the area that I focus on in, in this book is the, the coal fields, which lie just to the south of the provincial capital, um, Oviedo, um, and these are, these are winding, steep-sided valleys um, in which coal was mined, um, and in fact the mountains that, of the region made it quite difficult actually to to, kind of de- to develop um, coal mining as, um, as an industry,
0: Um, because of the difficulties in actually just getting the coal out of of the region. So could you tell us um, a little bit more how the coal mining worked in Asturias? And I'm particularly interested in the way in which in your book, you really put uh, the coal fields there in an international European context. So how did the coal mining that was going on there compare with perhaps the more famous examples in Wales, for instance, or Germany's Ruhr Valley? Yeah, the, the, inter, the, the question of coal regions
1: or wider coal regions is, is an interesting one. And there's been a long tradition of trying to understand the alleged kind of close relationship between mining and coal mining in particular and, and political radicalism. And interestingly, I suppose when I started out in in this work, I I wanted to kind of get away from that literature and get away from a kind of a close association or perhaps an essentialization of of this region as as coal mining and therefore is kind of very similar perhaps to to other regions. But at the same time, it's it's difficult to actually get away from the fact that, you know, coal coal is an important part of this particular area of Asturias at least. And it clearly is very close to, it, 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 it has an important shaping role in culture and politics, society. Um, and there are interesting parallels and differences to to be drawn with other regions. Now, in in terms of Asturian coal itself, it's different to to famous areas of of the extraction of British coal, for instance, in terms of both the the geography, the geology, the extraction processes. Um, So Asturian coal often appeared in quite narrow and kind of diagonal seams. So you couldn't just kind of um, mine straight through, horizontally through, the, through, um, through kind of the mountainside. Uh, you'd have to mine upwards or downwards, uh, which made it actually quite difficult technically to get out. These, these were very narrow seams, not particularly powerful. So of course, it's also not, it's also, um, you're not getting that much coal for your, for your effort. Um, and it was also poor quality, um, required extra processing through, through washing, for example. All of these are contributing factors to meant that Asturian coal was actually quite expensive, um, and then struggled to to compete on the on the, um, on the on the on the market in Bilbao, for example, where you have British coal arriving. So in that respect, Asturian coal, it, you know, is it, quite different to to areas of Britain um, and and in wider Europe as well, and it also looks quite different, I think. So the Asturian coal coal valleys, they they look very different to somewhere like the Ruhrgebiet, so the kind of the, the raw area of Germany where you have this kind of massive sprawling area of um, steel and, and um, coal extraction. It looks very different to the, dot, the kind of the pit villages that dot northeastern England, for example, and these kind of small self-contained villages. But it does, I, I think, look quite similar to, to South Wales where you have kind of these, these deep pits that are sunk in, in the bottom of the valleys um, this is what happens in the exterior coal cold valleys. You have deep p- pits that, are, that, that kind of are strung out along the valley floor. And then you have um, drift mines that, are mo- uh, that um, go into the um, mountainside themselves. So th- there is that ex- extractive and kind of geological, geographical side of things. But I was also interested in trying to bring out, and I tried to do this in, in the first chapter, um, aspects where there are some similarities or different and more differences really. Um, In terms of culture and politics. And I suppose one thing that I was trying to to bring out is, is the relationship of kind of of society and and religion in these particular areas. So religion in in 1930 Spain is quite a divisive matter to to put it mildly. And there is quite a clear distinction or or, or cleavage, I suppose, between um, anti-clericalism and and Catholicism um, or an atheistic um, anti-clericalism and and Catholicism at this moment in time. This works very different to to areas of Germany, for example, um, where in the mining region you have um, different faiths, but also immigrants from Poland, for example. So the relationship of politics... Um, religion, um, social groups is is in some respects much more complicated than what you what you find in, in the um Asturian coalfields. And religion in South Wales plays a completely different role to the role that it plays in um, in the Asturian coalfields. So I, t- I tried to tease out some of those differences without trying to over you know essentialize the coal regions as as something peculiar and, and distinctive.
0: Now this idea of how important the community was for the coal fields. That's something that you really emphasize in your book. So what kinds of places and organizations gave the miners their sense of community and what were the divisions that also existed within it? And you, you just mentioned the role of the church and uh, anti-clericalisms, maybe you could say a bit more about that as well. Yeah,
1: um, community, very problematic word but I thought it was an interesting way to try and to try and approach um, society politics culture um, in the 1930s it has a lot of strong tradition in, in studies of, of British coalfields, for example and of course it's it's a very kind of loaded term in many ways but I suppose what I was trying to do with the idea of community and this relates to how you know how I understand the question of divisions in the local community and what gave miners a sense of community is that I was interested in in probing kind of the the disputed unstable nature of community and community community is something projected something imagined something felt so it's something that it it, is an idea that's rooted in a particular geographical place but it's it, it it is it is something that is um understood in and and contested in many different ways so we have community as parish um, it's a municipal district which is represented by councillors, that sense of representation. It's also, a, you know, a community is, is imagined in terms of residents who are tussling with a mining company when, uh, you know, a spoil heap has destroyed a road or destroyed um, a water source. And a community is also invested with moral authority when it comes to a strike. The people are invoked in terms of supporting or not supporting a particular strike. And often communities is understood as working class or as leftist. Um, and this has you know, consequences that I try and trace after particularly after, after the elections. So I suppose this idea of community was, my, was a way of me trying to get away from a simple de- designation of individuals as say Catholic or socialist or, or communist and trying to think about individuals in a more rounded manner. And so I think what I tried to do is, is show how there were different ways in which individuals saw themselves as part of a the community. They were part of, I suppose, a socialist community but they also you know, had a place of residence. They had a place of work. They imagined themselves as part of a municipal district. So as, as you've said, there are important tensions and divisions. The socialists are the main union in this area um, at this moment in time. Um, and there are important rivalries um, between the different unions and different organizations. So the socialists are predominant. We also have anarchists, and communists. There is also a small organization of, of Catholic miners. And there's also um, a a political right that exists in this particular area, which has often been overlooked in the scholarship. So there are important tensions over politics, over questions of religion, as you've you've just mentioned. Um, Although religious schooling was was something that the mining companies offered in many areas of the coalfields and therefore a lot of, in fact, those those cadres of of, of left-wing organizations had actually um, endured, maybe as they saw it, um, a, a Catholic schooling. So it was not as if they were completely divorced um, from an understanding um, of religion. So I suppose I was trying to probe, I tried to probe how there are different axes of identification, so, and and, and also axes, of I suppose, or, or points of, of conflict between these different groups. So, you know, between unions, between different kind of political organizations, but there also can also be tensions between towns themselves. And so there are lots, all of these different ways of seeing one, oneself as part of a, of a community is also potentially a point of, of either kind of solidarity with others, but also friction,
0: depending on how those understandings um, collide. All right, so we're gonna take a short pause and then we're going to look at how this community in the coal fields experienced a radicalization over the course of the Second Republic. So in the second section, we're going to turn more to the period of the Second Republic itself. And your book focuses on the radicalization of these communities that we were just talking about in the coalfields during this period. Um, But you argue that at the beginning of the Republic, the miners were actually fairly moderate. So what forms did their moderate uh, politics take um, at the beginning of the Republic?
1: So, yes, yeah, so I, I was interested in in trying to pick apart that relationship between kind of moderation and conflict and the meaning of conflict and its relationship to, to radicalism. And, and, and I suppose trying to trying to look at the relationship between language and action um, as well. I mean, so to understand kind of moderate politics, um, I think we need to look at the, the socialists who are the they are the main union in, in the coalfields at this moment in time. They've gained a... a a large amount of support um towards the right at the end of the prima de rivera and um, dictatorship just before the republic and and with the an um the proclamation of the republic as well and um, they gain even more members and so the socialists see themselves as as an important um kind of i suppose support pillar of the of the republic um but they also distinguish um themselves from the regime itself in the fact that they are not republic, you know, they are not republicans, you know, this is not the end point um, of history for them. But it's the the socialists, they they are aiming to help construct the republic, and therefore they're quite critical of striking, Um, you know, all Spaniards need to be kind of pulling together to help um, construct this new democratic regime. Um, And so what you see in the context of of the socialist mining union in Asturias is kind of a self-proclaimed moderation Um, which is often distinguished from the actions of of anarchists and socialists, who are portrayed as immature, um, not knowing what they're doing. Um, Whereas um, um, SOMA, as the the Socialist Mining Union is called, um, they are are moderate and mature uh, and forward thinking. And there's often an assumption, I think, made from this particular position that the socialists didn't therefore strike. But actually, if you look at um, the kind of the records of strike action through newspapers, for example, socialist kind of rank-and-file union members, um, minors, um, struck struck quite regularly, went on strike quite regularly um, at at the beginning of the Republic, because it actually made a lot of sense to do so. If you have a socialist union which doesn't actually want strike action, and you want um, improvements in your working conditions, health and safety, pay, and these are the kinds of conflicts that emerge at the beginning of the Republic, it it can actually be quite helpful to go on strike because you know that you have union officials above you who are going to actually step in quite quickly and try and resolve these particular matters. And so that moderation, I think, at the beginning of the Republic doesn't necessarily mean a lack of conflict. It just means a particular way in which conflict is it happens. So there are strikes. Um, they are quite um, there are more perhaps clearly um choreographed or ritualized um, uh, and, and are much more controlled, I, I think, than what would happen a couple of years later. There's a clear list of demands about pay, about health and safety, and they, and they tend to be resolved fairly quickly. This is very different to kind of the wildcat strikes um, and protest strikes of a couple of years later. And I think that moderation you mentioned, you can also see in a, in a, in a different sphere um, that I've looked at in terms of political activism locally, and that is the sphere of, of um, tenant activism. So this is something I think that's often been overlooked in the historiography. We tend to focus on, on land reform in the South of Spain in, in terms of helping the lot of kind of landless laborers and, and impoverished pez- pe- um, peasants. But there's another, fa- um, another area of, of property which I think is important to look at, which is um, Republican introduced um, governmental reform um, in terms of tenancy rights. And tenants are allowed or, or, or empowered, I suppose, by legislation in 1932 to, to, to ask for a reduction um, in rents um, in, in, in urban areas. We're talking about housing here. Um, and so socialists get involved in 1932 in trying to, to help make this happen. Um, and what you see, I suppose, is a desire um, to kind of to, to reach a, a relatively amicable um, solution in these particular conflicts to reconcile differences This is conflict, but again, it is not a confrontational, um, um, and so that's, I think, how moderation um, is often expressed or how it happens in um, in 1931, 1932. But towards the end of 1932, um, and I think this is particularly telling, what you see socialists doing in in the coalfields is trying to reclaim the badge of radicalism. So, they try to reconcile that kind of moderate way of going about things with the radical label. Whereas previously they described themselves as being moderate and they tried to act in a moderate manner. Now they say, well, actually, we're radical, but actually, being radical is actually about being moderate. Um, And I think this responds to pressures um, in the coalfields themselves. Um, There is rivalry with the socialists, with the anarchists and the communists. Um, There is a a desire to see the republic um, realised, I suppose, uh, to see it material, um, to see it being constructed in daily life, particularly in, in the field of something like religion. But actually, what you see is a right starting to reorganise and to be more visible at the local level, um, and the pace of change is not perhaps as fast as, as um, socialists would like. And we also have the Sanjurjo coup in 1932, you know, and uh, almost like a, which which is interpreted, I think, as something of a, of a warning. And also, there's a backdrop of mining, of problems in the mining industry, of, a, of an industrial slowdown. So I think what happens at the end of, of 1932 is socialists are trying to, you know, they're trying to become radical. But at the same time, they, they, they understand the need to, kind of, to support um, the republic. So I suppose what I'm trying to do there is, is try to pick apart that relationship between, say, union officials or the socialist hierarchy locally, and also the rank and file, because I think at times it can be easy to read the, the, the position of the rank and file through kind of union documents and through the union hierarchy. And I think there's, there's, there are, there's a lot more friction and, the, and these, these things are much more unstable than we often um, give them credit for.
0: Then as the Republic moves forward and, and particularly as we get into 1933, when you have a, a conservative turn in the, the government at the national level, we do, you know, you do write about this process of radicalization. So how did this uh, take place as the Republic went on?
1: So the, the idea of radicalization is such a hugely important one in the, in the scholarship. And, and, and it, it was something that I kind of wrestled with for a long, long, long time. Um, because it's easy, I think, with something like radicalization to be quite kind of mechanistic about things and also to be quite teleological. T- t- uh, and particularly because we have October 1934, it's easy to come, almost kind of try and read back. Um, and I tried not to do that. Um, whether I was successful or not is another question. What I tried to do I, I, is um, track various factors, I think, and, and, and bring together various factors, because I think there there are several... There are several ways in which um, this kind of radicalizing wave um, emerges. So, as I've, as I've just mentioned, in one thousand, nine hundred and thirty-two, we have this kind of rivalry. We have the importance of anti-clericalism. We have the San Cuchillo coup. We have we have the um, the beginning of, di- of differences between the union officials and the rank and file. And this continues through one thousand, nine hundred and thirty-three. So there are important problems in the mining industry. And often it's seen, I think, for, particularly from a national level, that what we see supposedly in 1933 is the socialists radicalizing into line with the rank and file who have become kind of discontented with the pace of change in 1932, as you you said but actually if you look at the coal fields the the mining union is actually pretty inept it's perhaps a bit too a bit strong as a term but they they are not particularly effective at finding a a a workable durable um, solution to the problems facing the mining industry. Mm -hmm. And in particular, one of the solutions, so, so there are three um, general mining strikes uh, and the solution to one of them is to um, introduce a, a subsidy scheme whereby the, temp, the the workforce will be cut by 10% and um, these miners will go onto some sort of kind of unemployment um, subsidy. Uh, all of this is a way of kind of decreasing the production of coal um, to try and help um, the industry. And they think that they will rely on volunteers for this, and there are not enough volunteers. And so it's left to the mining companies to decide who's going to be left without a job on a very small um, subsidy payment, or who's even going to be retired early, which is another part of the scheme. And this creates waves of protest. And particularly, it young, it's young miners who are, who are often, um, their names are on these lists, and they're particularly resentful at this. And so I think rather than a situation of, of a... Of a, of a um, hierarchy kind of radicalizing into line, there's actually growing gulfs and increasing friction between, um, between the union and the rank of file. So that, that happens through 1933. Another factor that I think is important is the increasing or the emergence of the language of fascism locally, and, and particularly how it operates. So fascism through 1933, it emerges after, um, after Hitler becomes um, leader in Germany, but it's something ridiculed and it's something not really understood as well in the, in in terms of how it would actually um operate in a spanish in a co- context uh, would fascism be catholic and um, what does it actually look like um in spain and so prior to the elections it's kind of ridiculed and downplayed they can't really see any fascists in the coal fields for example but then after the elections so after um, the socialists and the Republicans lose uh, the left Republicans lose the elections to a, a third of third so this kind of conservative right-wing um, Catholic um, party but also the radicals as kind of conservative um, Republicans the fact that the left has lo- lost the elections means that fascism must exist it must exist in Spain and so therefore I think the way that fascism is interpreted locally is it's it's there it's an it's a conspiratorial threat but we can't see it but it it's, it's growing and so I think that kind of thinking around almost conspiracy theories is, is quite important in, in kind of creating or, or producing um, energy I suppose behind this radicalising wave and then I then, and, and this combines with what I think is perhaps the most important factor which is in 1934 after that change in, in national level politics um, a change in the nature of policing um, so with the new go- government there are more armed searches of left-wing centres the Casas del Pueblo um, there is the frisking of bodies, so the searching of bodies for arms, even of um, lunch baskets of miners as they're off to the pit, Searching of homes when they're at the pit, which again, which which leads to protest. And what so what you see is is uh, spiralling incidences of strike action um, and protest in in spring 1934. And whereas previously the the civil governor at a provincial level has been quite good at, at mediating, I suppose between. The interests of protesters and the police, or at trying to manage this situation um, at this particular moment, he's not particularly interested. And so, what you see is kind of it is a spiraling um, process here, and and and, and a similar kind of wave of protest erupts over the summer, late summer, 1934. and it gets to the point where the local, um, the provincial socialist press, um, and it's a particularly um, Important organ, Avante, as it's called, the, the, the socialist newspaper in Asturias, is particularly important in, in for, the, for the local left. It starts to talk of an army that is occupying, you know, the police is an army that is occupying the coal fields. So I think that policing strategy is particularly important in creating kind of a fissure between the local communities and, um, and national governments. So, they, 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 you know, their understanding of, of their community and how it relates to the wider. Um, national context has been has been radically altered in, in the wake of the elections.
0: And so you can really see how the national and international political context is really changing the way people approach this local politics at that period. So you already mentioned um, this a little bit, but what about that national context you know after the elections November 1933 and then also the international context with the of course the takeover of power of the fascists in Germany helped shape the way that people were thinking about politics there in Asturias. As you've just said really it's
1: about I think I think normally or traditionally the way this has been written about is in terms of context so you know there is, mm-hmm. a, there is an international backdrop and there's a national backdrop to all of this that um this is this is just purely kind of a, 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 an important context for, for, the, for these particular events but as you as you as you highlighted what I'm trying to do is actually connect the dots a bit more and to show mm-hmm. how those events are being interpreted um, and, and read I think against what's happening locally and nationally um, and they're important kind of coordinates I suppose for how these individuals are trying to navigate the solution uh, the situation which they found themselves it's difficult to know if this is a device of the of the the sources, so particularly of the press. But it does seem that the international context becomes increasingly important locally through 1934 in particular. And there's an increasing awareness and discussion of what's going on um, on a more widespread level, I think, in, in the coalfields than previously, which I think is quite telling. And 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 I also think that an important aspect of that is. Um, the fact that international organisations are agitating, you know, after after the destruction of the German labour movement, and the German left, you know, there are a lot of publications um, circulating lots of, you know, networks between between activists um, internationally talking about what's happened in in Germany and kind of solidarity initiatives. Um, So I think that's an important part of, of, of this kind of awareness. But in terms of what they're aware of, I think it is important to to note that I think what The left is thinking in 19 in early 1934 is that fascism doesn't always arrive with a coup and kind of some sort of revolutionary right-wing or counter-revolutionary right-wing overthrow of power that actually it can be constructed quite insidiously um, from above i think they're well aware that mussolini and hitler were both appointed into power that democratic mechanisms can be used to kind of to create the foundations for, um, for a, a form of fascist or authoritarian dictatorship. They're seeing um, what's happening in, in Austria with Dollfuss slowly constructing a, an authoritarian um, dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So I think it's easy to see how they, you know, if you're closely reading what's happening locally and nationally, and you're seeing things like an increase in police numbers, you know, recruitment of, of, the, of the police. Um, the reinstatement of the death penalty in spring 1934, you know, with this new government, a more assertive policing policy as well. It's easy to see these as small building blocks towards some kind of um, fascist nightmare, I suppose. So, although, it, you know, we can be sceptical about what the eventual, um, or what the motivations of the Radical Party were, or eventually Theda it when, it, when it joins the government in, in October 1934, I think it's important to be sensitive to how these activists at at the local level were joining the dots and were thinking in a kind of a quite fatalistic um, and kind of, I suppose, teleological manner uh, at that moment in time, thinking of a nightmare future that that, that they were slowly being moved towards by um, a combination of kind of national and international events.
0: All right, so we'll have another short pause here and then we'll discuss the rebellion that took place in October 1934 itself uh, in Asturias. So moving now into the rebellion of 1934 uh, itself, could you just give us a little background to start out? How did this rebellion get started? And why was it that Astorias was the only place where it really took off and became an insurrection?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the second part of the question is the million dollar question, and I'll do my, right. best, <laughs> do my best to answer it. Um, so I suppose that there is... a. A longer history to this um, to this um, movement in that it is it is a movement that is long in the planning. Um, it, it's something that um, that is planned by the socialist movement in Madrid, Lago Caballero at the top of it, and as, as head of, of both union and party um, by by early 1934. And so there's a plan for some sort of hazily defined um, movement um, in response to a threat to um, the republic of some kind as I say it's not really very well defined Um, over the course of 1934 there are instructions that are given out to socialist organisations there is funding for the the stockpiling of weapons Um, there is some training of militias as well Um, and this happens in Asturias as it does in, in in other parts of Spain Um, weapons are smuggled into the the country uh into the country from from other parts but also across the country um including from the basque country where they are smuggled um in um, boxes containing um, sewing machines so there are some weapons um not as many as they would like uh and the anarchists um who have reached some sort of agreement with with the socialists in in a for for a workers alliance so kind of um an agreement to collaborate but the planning of the actual movement itself is very much a socialist endeavor. Um, The anarchists are asking for weapons uh, and the Asturian socialists um, are not really very forthcoming to put it mildly um, over the course of the summer of 1934. So the trigger for the movement, um, for the the rebellion, for the revolution, or or what we want to call it is the the entry of the Theda. So this kind of right wing Catholic party um, into government in early October, 1934. And the order for, for this movement to begin is, is given from Madrid. There is a, a, a historic leader of Asturian socialism called Teodomiro um, Menéndez, who transports the message in, in in the band of his hat um, to Oviedo. Um, from there, from the office of, of the regional socialist newspaper is disseminated to the, to the towns and villages. And in the early hours, um, the revolt Um, begins. So the sound of dynamite going off echoes around the the, the coal valleys um, and the socialist militias, basically. Um, Those who've been entrusted with knowledge of of, of some sort of movement, they begin their revolts, they uncover the weapons um, and they they take power locally. Um, In Oviedo, the signal for the revolt to happen doesn't happen. Um, And so there's a kind of an uneasy day of a general strike. Um, before reinforcements um, arrive from the coal fields. So that's kind of how the how the movement starts. Uh, and and w- what happens is the militias lay siege to basically the, the, the kind of the civil guard posts, the civil guard barracks in the coalfields. Some surrender, some they, they fight their way into, um, and there, there are dozens of casualties. As to why in Asturias and why not elsewhere, um, I suppose my explanation of radicalism tried to emphasise, and I suppose my, the way that I frame my, um, my analysis of, of, of the coalfields in the 1930s is an attempt to try and understand why so many Asturian miners would join a movement like that. And I don't think this is purely a question of, of discipline. I don't think this is purely, you know, they were told what to do, therefore they took up arms against the government. And, and I suppose what I've tried to say um, in terms of the radicalising process is an attempt to try and account for that. But I think the relative success in Asturias is due to, this is, in the coal fields at least, there's a large concentration of, of left-wing activists. Um, there are strong organisations and, and institutions and networks between um, activists. There is also access to weapons. So although they don't have as many guns as they would like, they have managed to smuggle guns into the, into the um, region. There's also an arms factory in Oviedo that they've managed to um, smuggle weapons out of. Um, they also have, and this becomes later important, um, access to dynamite, um, which they put to, to kind of brutal effect in Oviedo. In um, and there's also relatively small numbers of police in this particular area. Um, and there are no army barracks. There are in Oviedo. Um, And they would be kind of the bastion of kind of resistance to um, kind of the left wing militants in October, 1934. So I think why it was successful in Asturias is a combination of those reasons. And a lot of it does come down to the ability to take control of that particular area quite quickly um, with relatively large amounts of of, of weapons, I suppose. But I think it's a very difficult question to answer of kind of why Asturias, why this kind of uniqueness and and why not elsewhere?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely but um, I think you presented a lot of interesting possibilities there anyway. So now uh, if I may ask another kind of contentious um, question, this label of revolution of course is a big one and it's one that uh, we sometimes see attached to this revolt in Astorias and sometimes not. So do you think that we can attach the the label of revolution and um, you know, if so, what was that experience like for these communities or the coalfields that did rise up?
1: Yeah, I spent a lot of time toying with these terms. As you say, they are very contentious. Um, and I think there is a lot, there is a desire and I think an understandable desire to reduce this event to, to one word and, and particularly also to think about the idea or, or, or to describe it as um, offensive or defensive, particularly regarding the Republic. You know, was this an attack on the Republic? or was it a kind of a defence of the Republic towards a kind of a a fascist or authoritarian threat? And I think what I have ended up doing is trying to complicate that way of of looking at things and, and looking at October 1934 as more of a process rather than an event. And I think the term revolution does make sense to a degree. I think the term revolution is often hung up on the idea of success or of outcomes and particularly viewing you know, a, a, a series of events uh, or a particular event um, retrospectively, rather than viewing it as an unfolding process. And I suppose that's how the, the latter is how I try to approach um, Asturias in 1934. So I call it a revolutionary insurrection as a sort of cop-out um, shorthand. Um, I think that some, and a relatively substantial number, were, genuinely thought they were trying to fashion a new world on the ground mm-hmm. in, in October 1934, however transitory that new world was. And I don't think they believe they were on their own in that endeavour, also, despite what I've just said about, you know, Asturias, you know, and as we know about Asturias being relatively unique in October 1934. But I think it's important as well to try and disentangle Asturias from Madrid. So one thing is what Lago Caballero wanted in, in Madrid, and one thing was the kind of the socialist plans. And another thing is what militants are doing on the ground. So our understanding of this as a revolution or an insurrection needs to be able to account for those tensions. So as... I tried to dissect this um, this process, I suppose, in terms of what what militants tried to f- fashion as a, as a new world and, and what they tried to conserve as an old as an old world. You know, they were trying to on, on one level to take back control of their communities after what they saw as you know police aggressions in in 19, in, in the previous months of nineteen fifty four, but they're also trying to build um, something new. So I think there's, there's an interesting anecdote. Um, of um, Teodomiro Menendez, so the the guy who um, transported the message to um, Asturias of the, the order to revolt, who is in many ways a reluctant revolutionary, um, but he is involved. He's very well connected. He's a historical leader of Asturian socialism. And at one point in in in, in October 1934, he is in Oviedo and he's in charge of of prisoners. And you have these young socialists and revolution would be revolutionaries bringing. Um, people they've arrested to him for revolutionary just, justice and I think there's an aspect of that of you know them, them, them wanting to see you know a, a new way of doing justice you know this is a new a new society a new you know so therefore there must be a new foundation for how justice must function but Menendez what he does is basically wave or he, he goes through the motions but he kind of in some respects waves um, these, these prisoners away Um, And this actually satisfies a lot of these younger militants. So, you know, there's an in some respects, there's a a going through the motions of of building a revolution, Mm -hmm. um, even if that is not always as radical a break as as some would like. So I think the experience of the revolt depends on where you are and how close you are to the front. It's very different in Oviedo, for example, which is the front line. Um, There's a testimony from a professor of law um, at the university who discussed taking refuge in a basement and, and, you know, nine in terminal days of the thunder of dynamite and, you know, and shooting taking places in the streets and there's also sort of looting that's going on. But in the coal fields, there's a much greater degree of normality. Um, the Spanish Air Force does drop some bombs, which is a terrifying novelty, of course, aerial bombing at this moment in time. But there's relatively little destruction there are re- revolutionary committees at the local level, formed by um, different groups of, of, of leftists, representatives from different organisations. Um, they attempt to ban money, they requisition vehicles for the for the the, the needs of the insurrection. They daub political graffiti, um, you know, on, on walls of um, free Russia or, or you know or um, or similar. And um, there's propaganda that's spouted via radio station they take um hold of, and they also collectivise, collectivize food and centralized food distribution um as well. So some of this is quite revolutionary, or you know, self-consciously revolutionary in a kind of a, in a in a laughing manner. Um, but I think part of this is also about waging war, and it can be quite difficult to see what the difference is between collectivizing and, and, and centralizing the distribution of, of food or reorganizing healthcare as a revolutionary act or as a way of actually trying to wage what in some respects is turning into a, a small scale um, civil war. So it's certainly a turbulent time um, and, and some scholars of wider Europe tried to describe this as a strike, but for me, it goes much beyond, um, much beyond a strike.
0: Well, you have me convinced, <laughs> eventually um, this rebellion was defeated militarily, and what followed was a harsh government-led repression. So how was this repression carried out and what were its effects on these coal mining communities?
1: Yes, yeah, so the the, the insurrection lasts two weeks. Um, and... On the 19th of October, um, the kind of the the Spanish armed forces and the police uh, kind of retake control of of the coal fields. So the the, the armed forces enter the um, the coal fields on the the 19th. They loot and set fire to things like the left and cultural centers, which they turn into detention centers. Um, There are some incidents of of kind of extrajudicial killings. But at the same time there is a there is a transition from I think that kind of that hot repression or that kind of that that initial kind of terrorization to more of a kind of a cold repression. So although there are some extrajudicial killings um, and also some eventual death sentences that are that are carried out once the cases of, of kind of the prosecution of revolutionaries meet meet the courts in many ways the nature of the repression in the coal fields I think is much more based on a, on, a, on a colder repression of beatings and imprisonment more than what we would see say in you know what we see a couple of years later in the, in the context of the Spanish Civil War so the police um, most famously under the uh, under the the um, leadership of um, Lizardo Daval, as, as, you, as you well know in, mm-hmm. from your own work, are, are, are in many ways given free rein in, in, in the coalfields to, um, to, to round up, to beat and, 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 to, and to take members of these communities um, in, into detention to try and basically find out where, they are, where the weapons are and where the money is that has been taken from um, the millions that have been taken from the, the, the Bank of España in, in, in Oviedo. So thousands end up in prison, uh, thousands suffer beatings, widespread use of torture, um, and then beyond that, there is also a kind of an economic repression, I suppose, in that um, there is blanket firing um, of uh, minors from their jobs. And so they all have to reapply for their jobs and they have to do so um, holding a work permit. There's a widespread kind of acknowledgement that they need um, to hand in a weapon in order to get a job, which carries a certain risk of being accused of being a revolutionary. So it's a really, I think, it's a it's it's a dark and disconcerting time. You know, the left wing organisations have been destroyed. Many have tried to flee into exile. Local institutions are paralysed throughout 1935 in terms of you know, even kind of lending libraries that are kind of loosely affiliated with left organizations have, have been closed down it's a time of kind of un- unemployment for many um, and, and great poverty um, and so it's really quite quite a dark time um there are also there's also the use of informers um, and there are there are records in the ar- in the archives of kind of denunciation of, of, of um, neighbors by their neighbors um, of, of their activities during the revolt itself So there's a, which I think leads to a certain sense of kind of a a community crisis in 1936. And what I was talking about in terms of radicalism and trying to sort out the problems of the previous couple of years in 1936, I think that kind of derives from the pressure, the pressure cooker, I suppose, of repression Mm -hmm. um, in 1936, in
0: 1935. A left-wing government returns to power in Madrid, February 1936. And then when you have the rebellion by the military in 1936, July 1936 that begins the the Spanish Civil War you have again uh, the miners battling the the police and military elements in Asturias do you think there is a connection there between the you know repression and the uh, not the destruction but the extreme stress that these communities faced in 1935 and this kind of round two that happened in the beginning of the Civil War I, I must admit, I haven't looked
1: so much at the documents from the beginning of the Civil War, so that's um. quite, it's, it's more difficult for me to reach an agreement, you know, a judgment about that. I think definitely in the early months of 1936, there is an attempt to kind of work through, as I, as I say, kind of the problems of 1935. I think, you know, despite the committed nature of many of these left-wing militants, um, the pressures of, of needing a job, the, you know, the pressures of, say, family or, or or even you know even even perhaps a change in, in ideological conviction in 1935 for whatever reason meant that there are there are it seems a, a large number who did not necessarily live up to that radical that expectation of the radical mine worker over the course of 1935 so of course as you say when the when the left wing government comes into uh, comes to power in 1936 and you you know you have the popular front spring suddenly there is a a renewed, I suppose, elevation of that image of the kind of the radical left-wing militant minor. Mm -hmm. But suddenly as they're trying to reconstruct these organizations, the Socialist Trade Union, Socialist Party, there are a lot of members or a significant number of members who have not fulfilled that ideal over the previous 18 months or so. So I trace kind of internal purges um and also um confessions i think by by you know by by rank and file members um denunciation of individuals who were you know so and so denounced so and so to the press and and also uh, to the authorities sorry um, and also boycotts at the local level um as a way of trying to kind of punish and work through and try and also reconstruct a kind of left-wing community in in 1936.
0: so -hmm. there is a
1: certain sense in which even before the civil war there's a kind of there's a crisis happening here, but it's a crisis that's very much linked to 35 and and, October
0: 1934,
1: rather than the war itself.
0: Right, right. So just one last uh, question to conclude here, because this radicalization that you've traced throughout the Second Republic in Asturias, that idea of radicalism is one that I think we've been talking about um, a lot in our society today. So do you think there's anything we can learn from this example of Astorias about uh, radicalization and how it takes place more generally? It's a very interesting question. And I think
1: over the course of this project, that if I I think about the the fact that I I began the the PhD um, project that later became the book, um, i began that in 2011 there are different ways in which radicalization i suppose, I suppose has play, played out in, in contemporary society so i suppose over the past year um, and i'm speaking with, you know from, from the perspective of britain it's been quite you know easy to look to look over, over the over the atlantic to what you know to events in the us and to think about kind of paramilitarism and political polarization and questions of radicalization but then if we go back a couple of ty- a couple of years in britain Um, There was the whole phenomenon of Corbyn and and the idea of radical, you know, the idea of a radical left um, emerged relatively briefly, you know, as a kind of as a as as, as a political project that was in was in charge of um, was controlling the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. Um, But then actually, when I started the project, radicalisation was most closely associated in the context I was writing, at least with terrorism. And it had quite a specific meaning of Radicalization was about young men becoming um, on, a, on a very individual basis as well as, as becoming terrorists. Um, and so I tried to read some of the literature and I must say, I, I didn't find it particularly useful. Um, and I found it quite mechanistic, mm-hmm. um, I suppose. So I suppose in that regard, my understanding of radicalism is something that is very kind of historically contingent, that is very contextual um, and I suppose is quite collective as well. Does not really fit well with that literature but perhaps can can show that literature that that you know that there is there you need to think about the historical um contingent um nature of radicalism as a um as a force i suppose um, i'm particularly frustrated with the idea of someone um being um, supposedly radicalized in, the, in a kind of a passive way which is often a way that uh, that i've noticed in the press we often talk about someone being radicalized mm-hmm. uh, and a very and if as a passive process, but also on an individual um, level. I'm, I'm suspicious of this, yet at the same time, I suppose the consumption of, of, of politics in the present day and the way that the media functions means that, you know, that the, the, the fact that we have tailored news feeds or Twitter feeds and, you know, the, the algorithms that, you know, that, that filter information out for us um, or select it for us means that, you know, the, our political world uh, and the information on which we are kind of negotiating the world with is perhaps much more individual than what I'm looking at in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. So I suppose I, I would say that in terms of radicalism, it's important to look to that kind of wider social environment and also to interrogate what we actually mean by radical. Which I think often in the literature, the word radical is often, you know, in the, in, the, in in common parlance, but also in scholarship, um, we it's often taken for granted that we actually know um, what it
0: means. Right. And that it's a the term that we throw around and there's kind of an assumption that there are th- certain things that, you know, all of radicals have in common, but that might not actually be the case when we look at the particular examples in history. So thank you so much, Matt, for coming on the program. I think it's been a fascinating conversation about a period of history, which of course is uh of personal interest to me but also i think is um one that is exciting for a lot of listeners as well
1: thank you very much for having me
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Historians. For additional information about our guest, and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.